All right, guys, go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Listen, I'd like to see y'all, all, a lot of you saying, and you kind of got out of it, start getting back into it. Get songs together. Let Brother Xavier know that you have a song that you want to sing. A lot of y'all have beautiful voices, and you don't give yourself enough credit. Listen, you're among friends. You don't have to be a professional singer to be a blessing in your church. I love it when I hear our people sing. I love it when Zara sings, and, and of course, Penny, I'd love to hear you sing. I know you've got a song you're working on. So we're looking forward to hearing you sing again. Miss Millicent, you used to sing some. I want you to start singing again. I'd love to see that. And then, of course, uh, Miss Cecile, I remember when you sang some songs. Remember that? Miss Cecile, you need to get a song together again. You going to work one up for me? I loved hearing you sing, and it's just good. It's always fun. Amen. Uh, Brother Dominic, never heard you sing, and I'm probably not missing much. You ready? You got one ready? Get on up here, man. Amen. We've got some ladies that really have beautiful... I love hearing our choir. By the way, men, we need some more men in the choir. It sure be a blessing. They're getting ready for the revival. We could use some more men's voices, but uh, I love our choir. It's not a huge choir, but it's a sweet choir, and it's growing. I know that every time I look at it, it seems like it's getting a little bigger, so happy about that. All right, we're going to be looking at the sixth and final church. Now, we're going to have to take about two Sunday nights to get it in, and I'm going to you know, stop at the appropriate time tonight. I'm not going to go too late tonight, but, but I do want to give you the, the upfront information about it. We're going to read about it, and then we're going to give you some, some trivial information about it tonight. Revelation 3, verse 14. Revelation 3, verse 14. Now, I don't have my lapel mic. Is it in, will it record still? It will record without it using this mic. I'm just going to stay right here, and I'm going to discipline myself not to run away. I'm going to put myself on a leash and just stay right here. All right? But it will record. It's not going to mess it up, Brother Jelani? All right, good deal. All right. Revelation 3, verse 14. If you are there, say amen. All right, then I will begin to read. It says, and under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, these things say it the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich. And increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You know what he's saying there. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but just it struck me as I was reading it. You ever get on to somebody, then you stop in the end of it, and you go, you know I love you. You know I love you. Zara, remember when I used to get on to y'all in school? Remember that? Sometimes y'all would be little, little jerks. Did you ever know that you were a little jerk sometimes? All of them were. Julian, you too. Adrian. Abby, I don't, I've never gotten on to you, but I'm sure there's times you can be a little jerk. Amen? Your mom's really nodding her head. Even your grandma's nodding her head. My goodness. They don't know you, Abby. They just don't know you. That's what it is. They, 
they got it all wrong. But you know, there was times, remember when I'd get mad and I'd get on to you students? And I would tell you something for your own good. Shaylee, you've heard that too. Shaylee, uh, Mikey, oh my soul, there's Mikey. I just saw him sitting there. Mikey's been in my office a couple of times doing boy stuff. And I'd get on to you, Mikey. But in the end, what would I always do at the end? I'd, I'd tell you how much I love you. And tell you some good things about you. And usually I'd give you a hug. Remember what I used to make you all say when you were in trouble? Who can remember? Anybody? Not, not too many of you ever ended up in there. But whenever I'd get on to the kids, I got school kids that know this by heart. They know exactly. They've had to say it 50 times. I've got some school kids. Why is everybody looking at Dominic? He's going to remember this when I say it. I would make them look at me and say, after I'd jump all over them, then I'd stop and I'd go, now you know I love you. And you know what, I'm a pretty busy fella, but I stopped my time today to talk to you about all this because I want you to learn from it and I want you to get better because I care for you. Now I want you to say something to me. They'd look up at me kind of, and I'd say, repeat after me. Thank you, Dr. Riggs, for loving me enough to care. Dominic, did you ever have to say that? Thank you, Dr. Riggs, for loving me enough to care. And I'd make them say it. Then I, sometimes, if it were appropriate, if it were, you know, I, I had to be careful doing this, but I'd make them come and give me a hug. I'd make them give me a hug. Sometimes the girls I wouldn't, but the little boy, you know, the, the, the high school boys, young boys, they'd come over and give me a little hug. And I'd say, now, you know, I love you. And I'd tell them again, but you can't do that around here. You can't behave that way. You've got to straighten it up. And I'd say, all right, go out here and do better. I know you can do it. That's what Jesus is doing right here. You know what he's saying? He has just, he has just ripped the Laodicean church. He has just said some harsh things. But now he's saying here in verse 19, you know I love you. You know I love you. And I'm only getting on to you because I love you. I'm not getting on to you because I hate you. I'm not telling you these things because I dislike you. I want you to do right. And it struck me as I was reading that. I guess I've read over that and didn't really catch that, but I know what he's saying there. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, in those verses, there's a lot there. We're not going to try to attempt to, to do the exegesis of that tonight. We'll wait till next Sunday night for that, and I'll tear each verse apart and bring you little, little, little nuggets out of each verse. But tonight, I want to give you some things. We are now looking at the seventh and final church in these seven churches that are listed in the book of Revelation. And in these seven churches, we see a picture of the church as it comes down through the ages. From the start of the church. Who started the church, by the way? Say it out loud. Who was the start? Jesus Christ, the founder of the first church. It was not started by Peter. It was started by Jesus. Jesus started the church before he ascended into heaven. Between the resurrection and the ascension, there was a group of about 120 people. And they sat at Jesus' feet. He taught them. One of the apostles wrote that if we had recorded everything that Jesus taught us during those times, it would take books and books and volumes of books. Now, that was a sealed meeting. There was no press involved. They weren't even allowed to go soul winning during that time. What was Jesus doing? He was building the foundation of the church. He was building the core of his church. I preached on this somewhat 
when I was using the theme, Be a 10 for the Lord at Orlando Baptist Temple, I was pointing out the fact that every church has a core of people. 10% of a church carries 100% of the burden of a church. Most people are simply what are called consumers. They come and they consume the resources of a church. In most churches, about 10% of your membership are contributors. They're the ones doing the work, carrying the load. Even when it comes to the finances, it can usually be boiled down to a core that carry the tithes and the offerings. What Jesus was doing, he was building a core, a foundation, not a mega church, not a massive church. He was building a biblically strong congregation. And the Bible says in Acts there were about 120 people at the time of the ascension of Jesus. Now, somebody said this about the modern day church. They said that the modern day church has a foundation that could be described as being one mile wide but only being about an inch thick. We don't see a lot of spirituality in the modern day church movement. We see a lot of contemporaryism, which is often very weak doctrinally. It's usually built more on emotion. It's built more on feelings. It's built very little on the gospel. It's built very little on doctrine. And these churches are very shallow in how deep they go down, but that would not be the case in the church that Jesus would start. His church he taught and he taught and he taught and they sat at his feet and these were literally the people that the church movement was launched upon. How I many of you understand that? Say amen. And even to this very day, the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church. The church has weathered the tides of time and it is still here going strong today. There are remnants of each of these church age churches. There were times when each of these churches were the mainstream church and we can see in history where each of them had their day, where the modern church, the, the church that was, that was prevalent, where the, you know, it would be the church that you heard about or, or, or heard things about or that was very visible. There was a time when each of these churches were the prevalent churches. Now there are remnants from each of those periods. We can look at churches around us and kind of identify that this church was from the Sardis period and this was a Philadelphia. This church you're sitting in right now is a remnant church of the Philadelphia church age. When we were breaking forward and preaching the gospel, churches like ours were the largest churches in America. And, and, and therefore, even in many cases, you could say in the world, these were the largest churches in the world throughout the late 1600s, the 1700s, 1800s, and to about the mid-1900s, churches that were coming out of the shadows of the Sardis movement right into the Philadelphia movement where churches that were, man, these were the ones underground. These were those churches that were in hiding, but yet preaching the gospel, standing true on the Textus Receptus. They were the ones standing for the name of Jesus. They were not a part of the Catholic machine. They were not a part of a man-made faith. Their, their, their line goes all the way back to the first century when Jesus started the church and the remnant of that church. We are a church that's a part of that line. And and we had our day. There was a time when our church ran a thousand or so every Sunday. I can show you pictures of a jam-packed auditorium over there on 50 where literally it was jam-packed full and on Sunday night and, and Wednesday night and revivals. And man, they, I can show you pictures of literally hundreds and hundreds of kids for vacation Bible school. And, and we were not unlike many other independent King James Version Bible, hellfire, brimstone preaching, evangelistic bus running, devil-hating fire-breathing churches in America. There was a time when every 
county you could go to, probably the church that was the largest and had, was, was really known and going and growing, those would have been the independent Baptist churches in America or our cousins, the Southern Baptist churches. Some of them had massive mega churches for their day. They would have been the largest churches in the town. And they preached and taught salvation and they, they stood on the Bible during those years. Now you're going around, you're seeing a lot of churches from the Philadelphia church age and they're, they're much like us. We, we know that in our history there was times that we were bigger, but we are still alive. We haven't died. We still have a remnant. We still gather. We still preach the same book. Do you realize since 1952, there's only been one version of the Bible ever preached in the pulpit of Orlando Baptist Temple? That is this King James Bible, the monarch of Bibles. Nothing else has ever been preached behind this pulpit. There's never been a pastor preached from anything but the King James, as far as I know. I do know that Pastor Kimball stood strong on it. Do you know that Pastor Kimball, he built this pulpit. He put right here a little plaque that says they came to hear about Jesus. That was his belief way back in the, I guess, around the late 70s, early 80s. People came to church to hear about Jesus. You know what? We still make a lot about Jesus around here. I'm very aware that when people come to church, it needs to be about Christ. We sang several songs today. Every one of those was a Christ-centered song. By the way, the same songs that they probably sang in here back in the 1950s. Now, we've added a few new ones that have been written along the way, and, and there's certainly some good songs still being written. But I'm still saying, I'm just saying, we're a remnant church of the Philadelphia Church Age. There are churches that are remnant of every one of the ages, but we've come down throughout the ages. This seventh and final church, we look at all seven of the churches, it is a panoramic view of the calendar of the church as it started under Jesus to where it's going to end at the rapture. The rapture of the church will signal the end of the church age. Now we'll be getting into that very soon because chapter 4 verse 1 opens up with this event we call the rapture. By the way, I want you to understand that I believe in the rapture. There will be a great gathering up. I believe it. I believe the church will be taken out ahead of the tribulation. There's a bunch of wackos on the internet. Baptist wackos, that's the worst kind because you trust them. I had a convert that I led to Christ and got his wife in church. They both got baptized and their little girl was growing. They had another baby. I was discipling him. Then he got linked up to this psycho, wacko, wackadilly idiot that's on the internet. This guy has a massive following now. He's going around splitting Baptist churches left and right. That guy got to watching him and ended up sending me text after every sermon, which that pastor teaches their people to do to correct their pastor and to argue with him and to start having a Bible study in your living room where you lead a group out of your church and you start your own church. That fella did all of those steps, as he is taught to do. He ended up trying to start a church in his own house and this and that. Not even in church today. Not even in church today. You better watch who you put your saddle on. Amen? You may be thinking you got a thoroughbred. You might end up with a donkey. I'm just going to stick with the old book. I'm going to tell you something else while I'm on it, because I'm on it now. You better watch out for anybody coming along saying, I found something new. I got a new doctrine. Yeah, that's what the Mormon said. And that's what J. Terrace Russell said when he started the, the, the Jehovah Witness, or I call it the Jehovah False Witness Church. Hey, something new. That's what 
the, the followers of, of Dianetics, which became the Church of Scientology. We got something new. And everybody's like, oh, something new? Wow. You don't need a new gospel. The one you got's fine. You don't need a new Bible. The one you got works. We're a remnant of a group of people that preach the greatest revivals in the world come out of the Philadelphia church age. That's our people. That's our heritage. That's our forefathers. Those are the names of the people that we held as heroes. Let me tell you something. Liberals don't have revivals. They steal people from churches that have revivals. They didn't got enough fire in their bones to create preacher boys. What they do is they offer shortcuts to success in our system. Or you can stay over there in that little system that, that you got saved in, called to preach in. They don't call people to preach. They're guys, they, they got enough fire to call anybody to preach. You don't see little bus kids being saved in liberal churches. Nobody cares about little bus kids in those liberal churches. You understand what I'm about to say? You understand where I'm headed with this? Every one of these churches have remnants. We're a remnant of this Philadelphia church age. We can see in each church the mainstream characteristics of the, of the churches of those periods. Tonight we see the end of the church age in the scriptures we've just read. The de-evolution of the church as it has become something far away from what Jesus started back there in the first century. You know, it's funny in Christianity, a lot of things kind of start here and they escalate upwards. It seems like when we look at the Bible, man started up here and has devolved, not evolved. Listen, Adam and Eve were not cave people. Adam was a brilliant man. He had, he had intellect. God says that he brought every animal to Adam to see what Adam would call them. And Adam named the animals. Adam had intellect. He tended to the garden. I don't know that he ever went to the 4-H or the, the, you know, the Green Thumb Club, but he knew how to tend to a garden. God put in him wisdom and knowledge. And Eve was born, and God put wisdom and knowledge in her when she came forth out of Adam. They weren't dumb people who stood around making noises with rocks as a way to communicate, as science would have us believe man started out. They weren't people going around going, oh, 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 oh. No, they had a vocabulary. I wonder what the language of heaven will be. I, I, I believe in my heart it'll be Hebrew. And I probably believe that Adam probably spoke Hebrew and that it was a, the language of heaven that Adam and God spoke. You realize that babies are born, they don't know how to talk. They make noises. They may look at a little toy truck and go, I want my yo-yo. Where's my yo-yo? You know, that they'll make names for it. Am I right about that? Our kids had their own language. Now, their mother could understand them. All mamas know how to speak the alien language of babyhood. All my, my brothers were twins. They had twin language. You ever heard of twin language? It was the most amazing thing. My brothers literally developed between them a language that they spoke, and they spoke it till they were about seven or eight years old. My sister and I understood it fluently. I can't tell you a word of it today, but back then they would say things to the people in the church, and, and to me it made perfect sense. It was clear as a bell what they just said. They'd look at me and say, what did he just say? And I'd say he was hoping that he could get that toy down from the shelf. Oh, okay. She'd hand it to him, and he'd some word that he had for thank you. She'd go, what did he say? And I said, he said, thank you. Sounded right to me. 
And they would talk, and nobody could understand them, but Christy and I, my sister, were constantly interpreting them. But you know, little kids, they have to learn the language. You know, Adam didn't have to learn the language. He communicated with God the day he was created. Am I, am I, am I get, you getting me here? Man started out here and devolved to where you and I are. You and I are devolved prototypes of the original thing. Spiritually, we are not where they were. Do you realize that if we could look at the Christians from the first century church, they'd laugh at us. Oh, preacher, it's just so hard to serve God. You just don't understand how hard it is to come to church and, and to sit there for a long... They're like, you guys only have three services a week? We worship daily in the church. And we didn't have plush churches. We had to meet in the back of houses. We were worried that Romans would come along and chop our heads off. We had to move from blaze to blaze. We couldn't even meet the same place. And, and you, guys got, you guys have cars? You have plush seats? You mean no one's ever threatened to arrest you for singing about Jesus? They'd laugh in our face. Can you imagine when you get to heaven sitting next to some of them early saints and talking about how hard it was to serve God when you were on earth? You just don't understand how hard it was. I went to a party and they laughed at me because I had a shirt that said I love Jesus on it. I was traumatized for days. I just went home and cried for a week. And they're going to look at you. It's kind of like sitting next to a veteran who's had his legs blown off and, and, you know, and, and talking about how hard it is that you have a splinter in your finger. Just didn't gonna compare, is it? That's how we're gonna feel when we're talking to them first century Christians. We've devolved. And we're gonna see through this church of, of Laodicea the final culmination of that devolving, of where it started out here and where it's gonna end up. It's not a very positive sight in the eyes of God. And we're gonna see how it becomes something very far away from what God started. We will see the deterioration effect that seems to always hit. Churches seem to have a peak, they seem to have a place where they hit, and then they seem to, after that peak, hit a decline. We're going to see that the church as a whole will hit a great decline spiritually. We will see it as it departs from God and from being about Christ. Now, I want you to notice this. If you have your pen and you're looking at Revelation 4, verse 14, it says, And the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, above the word Laodicean or next to it, write the definition of the word Laodicean. Here it is, you ready? It means ruled by the people. Ruled or ruled by the people. What should, what should rule a church? What should be the final authority in a church? The Word of God, which in turn is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When a church centers itself around this book, it is a church ruled by God. The name Laodicea means ruled by the people. What do we automatically deduct? We can see in this church, just from deduction of that, that, that title, what is, what is a major problem this church is going to suffer with? What do we see by that title there, by, by that definition? What do you think, Brother Xavier? We're going to see that it's a church ruled by humanism. It's going to be a church where the Bible is not ruling it. If God was ruling this church, it'd be ruled according to the word of God. It is the final authority. This is a church that's going to say the Bible is not that important. We're going to put it to the side. We're going to not make a big issue about it. We're going to water it down and change it and, 
and we're not going to make it the authority that it is in the Philadelphia churches. Remember what Jesus said? They stood on his word. The Philadelphia church age, the Bible was a big deal, and it still is to Philadelphia remnant churches. The Bible's a big deal to Orlando Baptist Temple. It's a big deal. We teach a lot from it. We teach a lot about it. We stand on it. The Bible says there will be a church movement that will come along where the Bible's not going to be a big deal. It will not be a church ruled by the Word of God. It will be a church ruled by the people of and in that church. So we see that the name means ruled by the people. We see problem number one right off the bat. This is a church designed to please people more than God. You know, today it seems that ministers seek to build a church that people would want more than a people that God would want. A holy, set-apart, sanctified, separated people. I preach a lot on separation and, and, and that we need to be godly people. I preach a lot against sin. Now, I preach for a lot of things as well. I think there needs to be a balanced diet. Balanced diet. I'm, you know, if, I, if I'll ever fed you with spinach, sometimes you need some chocolate cake, amen? Sometimes you need a little meat. Sometimes you need some veggies. Sometimes a little banana pudding is good too. I like the fun things of the Bible, but you know what? There's got to be a balanced diet. But you see here, these are churches that they've made a decision. We are going to build a church that people are going to want to come to more. That is our concern than building a people that God would want to fellowship with. You know, I think about Adam and Eve. They had perfect fellowship with God until sin and iniquity entered into their heart. And then the Lord came down in the cool of the evening to fellowship with them, and they ran away and they hid. Listen, sin and iniquity will cause a separation in your spirit with God. Not, not a separation in your relationship. You're not going to become unsaved, but it will cause a separation in your fellowship. You will not walk with God if you allow sin to set up shop. Churches have a responsibility to preach against the sins of mankind. And the problem is, when you're building a church for people, you tend to shy away from things that the people don't want to hear. You tend to put a little sab on it, act like it's not going to hurt them. Listen, I believe in churches preaching and teaching the truth, standing on this book. But you can't do that and please the people. You're either going to please God or you're going to please man. And we see a church that's going to make a decision. We're going to be about pleasing the people. Now here's some problems we're going to see. I won't have time to go verse by verse, but we're going to see these problems in the Laodicean church. First of all, we're going to see narcissism. Uh, there are a lot of narcissistic pastors in the world right now. You know, we are supposed to be eunuchs tending to the bride of Christ. It is improper for a eunuch to try to divert the love of a princess who's being groomed to be married to a king. Often they would have eunuchs, men assigned that would help them and serve them and but those men were often sterile. They were made sterile because they were not to ever take pleasures or, or uh, what do you, what's the word here, uh, liberties with the queen that they're there to protect. She is in store for the king, the husbandman. The Bible says that Jesus is the husbandman and the church is the bride. I am a eunuch placed here in the church to take care of the church's needs, but I am never to garner the love of this church towards me and not towards Jesus the Messiah. There's a lot of churches that are in love with their minister more than they are in love with the Messiah, and the result is always cultism. 
the result is always a shepherd that leads people to follow him and not Jesus Christ. It's not hard to do. These men know how to do it. They know how to pull on the heartstrings. They know how to make people fall in love with them. Listen, I'm constantly trying to remind you it's not about a pastor. Pastors are important, and we are leaders. We're put here to be a blessing, but you need to be in love with Jesus. It shouldn't matter to you if preacher's here or not. If I'm here to preach, or if it's Brother Jelani, or Brother Xavier, or Brother Jonathan, whoever else is in this pulpit, you're here to be a part of the body of Christ. Now, I'm glad that you like to hear me preach, but it ought not ever be your spirit. If well, a preacher's not there, I'm not coming. That's how churches get in trouble. Or if our pastor resigns, I'm never going back to church. Listen, are you following a Messiah or are you following a man? You've got to make that decision in your heart. But I want you to understand, I don't want you to ever fall in love with me and make me the reason why you're coming to church. I want you to love me. I want you to love my family. I do love you. I want to be a faithful shepherd. But it is, listen, it is not about me. I'm not trying to build the Russell Riggs uh, you know, religion. I'm a eunuch that God has put over a bride that I'm supposed to present spotless to him at the coming of the Lord. Somebody say amen. And yet there are pastors today that the whole ministry is built on their name and their image and their thinking and their doctrines and their, and often it's not biblical. It's their philosophies. And yet those people are so in love that eunuch has stolen the heart away from the bride and now it's an unfaithful bride that the bridegroom will come to receive. This eunuch has now taken liberties with something that is not his. By the way, that's a good way to get your head chopped off. I think it's dangerous for a pastor to try to divert the love of a church to follow him more than this book. But yet we're seeing it in the mainstream. We see, number two, churches that are rich and focus on riches. It's called the prosperity giving. We're going to see that in the Laodicean church. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but we see that, that this focuses on materialism. And many churches that are part of the Laodicean movement that are mainstream are very focused on materialism. They are very focused on riches and earthly goods more than their Philadelphia predecessors. We see, number three, that the churches are full of, of tolerance towards sin, and they're very sinful churches because of it. Listen, a church fills up with whatever a preacher is afraid to preach against. These are churches tolerant and sins filling up. We see that they're non-Christ-centered churches. Non-Christ-centered churches. The gospel is lessened. Other things are preached more, and they've lost the main thing. There's no longer Christ, and we'll see why I say that next week or so. Churches that are full of pride. Churches with a non-stance. They stay in the middle. They're lukewarm. We'll see that. Uh, we see that. Now, get this. The church at Laodicea was about 40 miles away from Philadelphia. They were very close. Uh, these, all these churches were close. In fact, it is suggested that John at times was a circuit-riding preacher, that he would go back and forth preaching in all these seven churches that were in the Asia Minor there, that under the Roman providences that were governing them. This was a very wealthy city, and we'll see how that affects this church when we get into it. It was famous for producing wool cloth. It was destroyed in 60 AD, but it was rebuilt without any help of the Roman government. It did it completely on its own. It was a wealthy city. It had no outside help, never asked for help, didn't need any help. You're going to see how that figures in and their spirit as a church. They didn't feel they needed God either, and you'll see that. And well, you, you talk about uh, Jesus and his, his perception of rich men. You hear Jesus talk a lot about the vanity of wealth. 
Remember, he's the one that said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. I'm going to tell you why he says that. Rich people don't think they need God. The Laodicean church was a church of wealth, and therefore it did not think it needed the power of God. It could buy its way to bigness. You know why most people feel you, you don't minister churches, you market churches. Now, it's the age we're living in, and churches have to market now. We have to bring it up. We have to up our game to market. But you know what? I'd rather minister people into church than market them in. I'd rather that people had the character to say, you know what, I just moved here, I need a church, I better find a good church that's preaching the book, and I better go join that church. But now we have to be out here with banners and flyers and, 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 and radio ads, and all those are the things that going churches have today. It's just like McDonald's mentality. They need a Happy Meal, you know, they need a prize, they need to be playing Monopoly to be able to get them into church nowadays. But it wasn't always that way. People would get saved, they joined their church, and then they realized that character said you need to have your family in church. Now we're, we're busy marketing everything, and it's, a, it's just a reflection of the age that we're in. And, and this church had an attitude, a, a swagger about itself that, is, that, that goes along with that whole history there. We also know this, the age is the seventh and final uh, church and it reflects the condition of churches at the time that Jesus will return. Now, according to this, churches will be people-friendly churches. That'll be the overall characteristic of churches right before the rapture. They're designed to gather people, but not necessarily change people. And we see that uh, churches in the last days, right before Christ's return, the church will be a combination of worldliness and spirituality, very contemporary, uh, reminiscent of what Paul wrote about in 2 Timothy 3. Now, I think it's important for us to note right off the bat that Jesus gives no compliment, not even one. It's the only church out of the seven that Jesus is not going to say one positive thing about it. He's no longer a part of it. He's no longer in the center of it. He's outside knocking on the door saying, hey, guys, hey, hey, will somebody let me in? He's done been locked out. It's now consumed with other things, namely the people-pleasing business. Now, we're going to find some more practical things out in this, but I'm going to leave that to next Sunday night when we really can delve into it verse by verse. But listen, I want to let you know that I've purposed in my heart, although I want to be a going church and a growing church, and I want to reach and teach and, and get a hold of everybody that we can, but I do not want to be a Laodicean church. I do not want to be a church that's lost its distinctions, that's lost its stance, that's lost its belief in this book, and now we're just doing things to please the people. I want to build this church on the Word of God, not on the preferences of people. And I want you to purpose in your heart as our church body that it's okay then. If that be the case, we can either be a Philadelphia church and overcome, stay faithful, be of little strength, but be of great value to God. Or we can join, like many other churches, take the name Baptist off our sign, get a, some modern translation of the Bible, throw away our hymn books, and get a bunch of body-moving music, not soul-stirring music. I'm not against new songs. Brother Xavier and I have had talks, and you, you've got a good selection of music that you're bringing in, and I, I've approved of, uh, there's not been any songs that I've been sitting there thinking that's not a good song. He's got a good eye. I'm not against new music. But there is a form of gospel music that is worldly. 
And it is designed to get you shaking your body, not breaking your spirit. Music ought to get you in line to worship God. Now, what you do in your car, what you do when you're cleaning your house, is not always the same of what we need to be doing in here when we're focusing on the Word of God. I would rather you be listening to some of that than what's out there when you're cleaning your house. But it doesn't mean that we need to open up our church and sing it right here. And there are churches that have done just that. You all understand? we got to make this stance together, and then we got to pay the cost. What does that mean? We need to love our church in spite of the fact that sometimes it's not going to be the biggest church on the street. And sometimes your friends and neighbors are going to be telling you about their church. Oh, it's awesome. Oh, we have an hour-long concert before the preacher brings a five-minute message, and he don't preach long like your preacher does. You're going to be like, man, our preacher does preach pretty long. He doesn't preach for five minutes? Wow. Some of them, I'm going to be honest with you, that's five minutes too much coming out of their mouth. They're lucky that they've even been able to scrape up enough biblical knowledge to even have a five-minute long sermon. You could contain what they know about the Word of God in a walnut. So it really fits. They're too busy playing golf and dating the church's women and then hiding from their wife all week long to study the Word of God. I don't want to be a Laodicean church. We're going to pay the cost. It's going to mean empty pews. Now, I'm not going to use it as an excuse. We're going to get out and try to reach every single soul we can. We're going to contend for the faith. And I know some Philadelphia age churches that are growing and strong. Maybe they're not what their forefathers were. They're not running five or 6,000, some of them, but they're strong for what they are. Listen, our church, don't you ever forget it. Orlando Baptist Temple is a good church. We are praying about what the Lord would have for our future, but we are a good church. And if the Lord came today, he'd come back and find us standing faithful. And I wouldn't have to be here. Listen, I'll be ashamed. Now listen, all of us, when we stand before the Lord, are going to put our head down and wish we'd done more and wish we'd done less. Stupid stuff. But I will tell you this. I will know that I did the best I could where I was at with what I had, standing on this book and preaching the truth and not trying to be contemporary and not trying to be a people-pleasing preacher. And if I can look God in the eye and he could say, Son, I was faithful over little. I hope that I'll hear well done. And I hope the same for you. Let's bow for a word of prayer.